Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have my good friend Enzi Kartasi. I probably mispronounced that and I apologize. And we are discussing the deep lore, the narrative. We're going back to the 19th century and we're going to talk about the historiography, histori- historiography of, his- of the 19th century. I am imagining a lot of you are groaning right now. You're letting out an audible groan. You're in the coffee shop, on the metro, in the sandwich, wherever. And you're just like, oh, shit. You know, here's the inevitable. Cena has six library cards, you know, buying all the phoner books, all every every book, you know, going about town, phoner pilling everybody at any opportunity and to talk about reconstruction. You know, it has nothing to do with extremism. What do you do in Cena? I've been thinking about this a lot. And the more that I think about it, the more that I think it is worthwhile to deep dive History to deep dive history and look at the narrative and look at the lore around our history. I think in one of our previous episodes with our good friend JM, JM Berger, he, he kind of in discussing his paper, Paler Shade of White, he has this kind of line in there where he talks about the Confederacy and about how the Confederacy in our modern interpretation would be considered an extremist government, right? It kind of fits that definition of extremism. And you know, apart from the podcast, you can kind of see history and its sort of interpretation play into extremist narratives. I think most popularly, I think a lot of you are familiar with the lost cause, the idea that the South shall rise again, you know, Stonewall Jackson did nothing wrong, fuck Longstreet or whatever, whatever these lost cause guys are vibing on. In kind of more subtle fashion, you see it again with the Dunning School, with this interpretation of Reconstruction as being a failure, as the white carpetbaggers coming down into the South and subjugating the noble Southerner to the liberal North. And, and the idea of, of, you know, Black people, they didn't, they didn't have the agency, they didn't have the, the autonomy to, to be full citizens, their rightful places on the plantation, et cetera, et cetera. And so you kind of, even though it's not the Dunning School isn't as kind of blatantly racist as the lost cause, It you begin to see it seep into our modern historical understandings, and you see it kind of influencing how people think. So that's why I want to kind of deep dive in this and kind of look at and come up with some concepts and ideas. And Enze is a good friend and good mutual, so we're going to have that discussion. So anyway, with all that being said, please welcome my guest. How's it going? It's going pretty okay. I'm enjoying a beautiful, I think today was 108 degrees. I'm enjoying Ooh. that just a whole bunch. Yeah, it's really nice. Beautiful, beautiful summer day. But yeah, no, it's, it's super nice to be here. Super nice to talk about everybody's favorite, most chill, most normal period of history when everybody was um, totally cool about everything. And to my knowledge, nothing, I think like super major transformative happened in history, much less <laughs> the founding of history as a concept. Yeah, I actually, somebody told me, I told them about the show and they were like, Oh, the 19th century in America, nothing interesting happened. No. It was just guys shuffling paper, you know? Just, yeah. Just like doing nothing with their time. Yeah. There was, there was a, uh, there was, I believe it was, you know, there was a slight war of Northern aggression. But other than that, no, 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 I shouldn't joke about that. I'm going to get obliterated for that. No, automatically, immediately making a singular problematic joke. But no, it is, it is a period of history that I, I'm, I'm fascinated by. No, actually, not just in America. One of the things that I really like about that period overall is that, you know, it is, it is, one I think people seem to forget pretty much through the fall of of you know Greek antiquity 
to, I think, you, I mean, I think you can argue, I mean, it's kind of, you know, consensus to the 17th and 18th centuries, pretty much throughout that entire period, history is not a thing. You have, you know, chronicling, you have writing down dates and, you know, hey, on this day, this thing happens. And maybe some loose facts. And occasionally you have someone who we would maybe call a historian, kind of, sort of. But for the most part, you have chronicling, you have bookkeeping. It isn't really until the 17th, 1700s and 1800s, you know, the 18th century and 19th century, that history is a thing. And even then, it's, it's pretty loose practice. It's not until the 19th century that, like, historians are, are just people walking around doing history, creating texts, ideology, ideas, philosophy, whatever, social science of history. And it's that same period that like the idea of, of, you know, the nation, the society is this structured concept. And it's the same period that, you know, we have in America, we go from the union of the, the various states to the one country, the one nation, obviously with the civil war. And overseas in Europe, you have, um, you know, the Napoleonic War, you have, a, you have the revolution. In Italy, you have, not going to go deep on this, I could, I'm not going to, you have a Resurgimento, which is the, the creation of Italy, and that's fairly late into the century. You have in Budapest, Budapest, however you want to pronounce it, you have a failed kind of national attempt that eventually turns into a thing. You have a whole series of nation-building, nation-solidifying events that kind of culminates, you know, on the European side with... Germany. And that's when, you know, the practice of the modern age starting, depending on when you want to call the modern age really coming into existence, cements itself, you know, the formation of Germany, at least on the European side of things. And that's, that's when, you know, if you want to say modern history begins. And it's, it's a, it's a really neat century. It's a really fascinating period of time to study. And, and, you know, here in America, it's obviously a, a truly transformative period of time. So before we get into the specifics of why the 19th century, I, I think I find something very interesting that you touched on, this mm-hmm. idea that initially history wasn't something you studied, it was more conveyed as a story, right? Like yeah. to, to, to kind of add to that image, like the, the village elder or, you know, somebody in the forum would tell the, the great story of the, you know, the invasion of you know, the burning down of Carthage or whatever. And then, you know, suddenly in the, you know, 18th, 19th century, you move to this idea of history as study, as, as sort of organized practice. And that coincides, if I'm understanding your, your sort of argument correctly, it coincides with the rise of nationalism, of the modern kind of nation state, not just mm-hmm. the state, but the nation state. How do you see those three things, that, those two things, let's say two things, how do you see those as related as this kind of transitioning from story to study from kind of loose empires or loose organization of humans to an organized nation state? Like how do we can, how do we relate the concept of history and its progression into a study with the development of the modern state? (laughs) <laughs> which is a, so, <laughs> sorry that's a bit of a PhD well, question <laughs> yeah okay so I, I will say so I think from a classics perspective and we're going to talk about the west here because there is a there's definitely an eastern tradition of history which is its own animal because we can talk a lot about you know the warring states period 
in in China, for instance, and which which you know, I I studied forever ago, and I am going to say fascinated by. I am not expert enough to talk about it without you know, well and truly showing my ass. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but on the you know, in terms of the, I'm 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 doing the world's biggest air quotes here. The West which is a concept that did not exist in antiquity. Anytime we talk about the capital W West, it is always worth remembering when we talk about antiquity, did not exist as a concept. The West is one of the most artificial... I'm actually going to say this, because I know a lot of folks hearing this are going to be American. I say this as someone who is like of, of Southern Italian and Southern French ancestry and extraction. If you go to Europe and you talk about like the West, a lot of people think you're an idiot. It's not like, wait, what is... What is I'm from like my family's from southern Italy. No, <laughs> the West is nothing. We, we our our ideas of who's who, who's from where, are way dumber than that. No, point being, point being, back in like classical antiquity, back in Greece, you have Herodotus, first historian, in the con- context of of folks over here. Okay, and you're talking about the Bronze Age then, and and the concept and conception of like what history is and what history does. The whole I'm going to use a, a word here, my favorite words, whole ontology of that. And, and there's a lot of ways to, to talk about ontology. The short version is ontology is it is the network of ideas and how those ideas interact and what ideas do. The, the super fast definition of ontology that's useful here. The ontology of history and how it works in that worldview is it produces ideas that are useful and stories that are useful. And, and a thing that I think is, is handy to have in mind here is there is what is true, there's what is correct, there's what is right, and then there's what's factual. And from an epistemological standpoint, getting real high level here, the fact is hard to ascertain. And it's also not always that necessary. It's not always that useful. Because I mean, really, if you, weren't, if you weren't there, if you didn't experience it yourself, you don't know. And also, how useful are facts? Facts are what the weather was. Facts are what time of day it happened, right? Truth is what happened. What did it mean? What did it do? What came of it, right? If you're talking about a battle, you're talking about the ascension of one king over another. That's, and you know, and what that king went on to do, that's truth, right? And, and you know, Herodotus had this school of thought with, with that type of history of kind of a focus on narrative truth, that history, like a lot of things humans do, is part of a narrative. And not always a grand narrative, sometimes, but sometimes it's just, here's a thing that happens. Here's a story that happens. And critically, like, that makes it easier to tell to other people because then they want to hear it. And arguably part of the job of a historian in that context is to tell stories. There is a reason that story is part of the word history. Like, that's the, yeah, like, (laughs) spoilers, that's, that's, Definitely why that word is in there. Later on, a student, I'm going to get his name wrong. I'm never going to try because it's, it's got like a TH in there and a Y and a U. I'm going to beef it. The next student of his, literally one of his, you know, contemporaries after learning from Herodotus, guy who fought in the Peloponnesian War, a little more fact-based, a little more, hey, I don't need to necessarily have the grand narrative. Still very story-based, still very quote-unquote truth-focused. What I find compelling, what I find interesting is that after the decline of Greece, after the rise of Romans, Romans have a very different, I would say much more like loose view of what history is. That is, you know, a reason why after the Romans crushed the people and were gone, they're just gone from history. There are whole tribes we will never know about because Rome just wiped them out and had no interest in recording who they were. 
that's a whole thing you know not not a not a record keeping people the romans throughout the the period of fall of greece up to the kind of pre-modern and modern era of history you have this this kind of just record keeping attitude and then early on you have this kind of driven by the facts attitude, what is called a Whiggist approach or a modernist approach which is that history is about blunt simple fact because the goal is twofold one it's history is a thing that's happening we're here to look at it to observe it and to record it but also we have these these cool societies we have we have the british empire we have france we have the united states and our goal is to tie this great powerful being that we have this nation state and you know tie it back to the past to create a narrative or to find the narrative really in their eyes it's to find the narrative what caused our nation state why is our nation state the thing that it is now for various reasons one because if you cast a wide enough net you'll catch fish and also because if you are a central or western european protestant and you're always around central and western european protestants you have kind of a normal a normalcy bias right you're going to see everything that's familiar and normal to you and it, well everybody does things this way so all this is logical. So everything, of course, led to the German Empire, because how could it not? Everybody here is German, just like me. How great. How cool. How wonderful. Except for Bavarians. They're kind of mud people, but whatever. That's what, you know, they thought back then, because, again, Europeans just love inventing weird ways to be bigoted against one another. It's so cool. It's so normal. But when you go to East Asia, you look around. These people do things that are different from me. I don't see the totally obvious, totally inevitable arc of history that would lead to this doesn't make sense. These people are backwards. They have no history. How could they? They're just doing whatever. They're chaotic. They're emotional. And that's what people thought because they didn't see that normal, inevitable, logical society in their eyes that led to that. And I think an interesting kind of curl to that is back in the 1700s, there was a period when the Portuguese were in Japan. And for a little time, back when the various shoguns were fighting one another, a bunch of po Portuguese people were down in the south. I want to say Hokkaido, my Japanese geography is not very good. They converted a bunch of Japanese people to Christianity. And for a time, Japanese people were basically white because they were Protestants <laughs> in the eyes of a lot of Europeans. They were the, the, the white Asians. Because if you were in the Christian world, other Christians were good and non-Christians were bad. So Chinese people, not Christians, oh, well, they're inferior. But Japanese people can be Christianized, so they must be the better Asians. And then Japan unifies, they wall themselves off, they get rid of the Christians, we're not going to worry about how. And within a couple generations, they're back to being emotional, angry, inferior. You know, they're, they're, they're orientalized. They're exoticized in a you know, bad way. Well, I mean, really, all that is a bad way. But in the like, oh, they're savages kind of way. Because that is what happens when you have this, like, this view that history is in a, a narrative of inevitability. And that's kind of that modernist, Whiggish view of nationalism that was the original kind of first era of history in the modern era. It's interesting. You know, when we... 
when we look at the history of the 19th century, do you, how do you, let me, how do you view that? Like, how do you view the 19th century as a whole? And then, <laughs> oh, it's going to be, oh, it's going to get better. When you, when you take that, when you take that as a whole, as a top view, what do you see as the points of negotiation that points, you know, I, I think slavery is the obvious answer. The, the civil war is another obvious answer, mm -hmm. but when you look at it, where do you see the points of negotiation, the points of where one side says this happened this way, and then another side says, no, it happened this way. You know, where do you, to you, what is the, where are the big negotiations there? Oh man. Okay. Can, can I answer that with like a little dodge? Cause I have like a weird, yeah. there's a couple, there's a couple places that I can. Okay. I've got, I've got two. Okay. Let me, let me actually jump to, Okay, I just got a really good place for that. Okay. One of the things that is, there are a couple of things, there are a couple of places in history. One of them starts actually in the 18th century, or you can argue even in the 17th century. One of the things, and if we're talking specifically about American history, because we've got to do a thing that's a little fraught, I think it's a little problematic here called, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly on the first try, periodization, which is tricky in history. Because you have to remember that, like, you know, history is this large tapestry, just in time. But in geography, places are interconnected, peoples are interconnected, great, cool, whatever. But for the sake of the human mind, we kind of have to put things in little boxes. Otherwise, you can't form sentences and ideas. A thing that, that probably has defined American history more than anything are the series of, of great awakenings. For instance, the first great awakening is how you get, it's how you get the Puritans who came over and, you know, to a certain degree, from, from, a, from a 1600s perspective, were, yes, fleeing religious persecution, maybe looking to do some of their own religious persecution. A thing that's always worth remembering about the Puritans is that they had some correct, you know, in a given sense of the word, criticisms of the Catholic Church and of the Anglican Church. They were also religious fundamentalists. The 1600s, everybody sucked. And it's also worth remembering that, you know, when, when you know, the Puritans gained any amount of power, they kind of went bonkers because it was the 1600s. It's also worth remembering that they, in fling religious persecution, you know, contributed to the Atlantic slave trade. That's not great. It's bad. If you want to talk about if, if Jamestown or Plymouth were worse, Eh, who knows, right? But that is, you know, it, it, that, that whole stretch of colonization of the Puritans is this very important, like, stage of pre-colonial America. In the, the Second Great Awakening in the 1700s, we have the, the spread of Quakerism, we have the spread of deism. And, and deism is this incredibly vital concept in American history. Many of the founders, both slave owner and not, were deists, and they had this idea of an American identity that was divorced from English and Western European Christendom, Protestantism, and, and to a large degree Catholicism, of centralized faith, of, you know, your church is your mind, basically, which you can argue did not last. It is worth remembering that George Washington, incredibly fraught figure, has not survived well contemporary analysis was a committed deist, was a committed, was an individual committed to the idea of 
as long as you are not looking to institute, you know, structural religion in the country, you're welcome to be here, whoever you are. Was not, you know, an enemy of the Jew, right? I could, I could talk endlessly about Thomas Paine and his views on deism that only get more intense with time. The Quakers were, a lot of them are pretty cool, right? And then in the 1800s, finally back in the correct century here, we have the Third Great Awakening. And this is where we have these ideas. And it's, and it's worth noting that, that as the Second Great Awakening progresses, this is where we start having the issue of like slavery really, really, really influence Christianity in America because it's when slavery is a huge force in American culture. It's when, for instance, Methodism has to, to confront what does slavery mean in a Christian context. And it's when slavery is this critical force in Christianity in, in certain denominations where you have certain faiths that either split on the issue of slavery, you have certain denominations that exist because they decide we are going to embrace slavery or we're going to deny slavery. Methodism is a really good example at the time of a religion and, and apologies to any Methodists who don't like to think about this or, or, or you know, Methodism is cool now, as far as I know. Methodism is not pro-slavery in, in the year 2022. I, I want to note that before I say this. Methodism went with the idea of slaves can't be Methodists. And God and Jesus are cool with slavery. They, they like it. They want, they want Black people to be slaves. They're inferior in the eyes of God. You know, the whole line of ham stuff, just a vicious time. And it laid the groundwork for the genuine worsening of slavery in America, which is saying something, because slavery was already a pretty horrifying institution in America. Just terrible stuff. And then into the 1800s, later on, you have the Third Great Awakening, which is where we see a reaction to an increasing movement in American Christendom of anti-slavery, you see an increasing acceptance of non-Christians, you see slaves being taught Christianity, and, and not just being taught Christianity, but being taught liberation through Christianity, and you see a crackdown on that in American Christianity in the Third Great Awakening. And that is one of the huge flex, flex points in the 1800s of the transformation of American Christianity into one of the core power structures in this country. Critically, you also see the introduction of a great deal of mysticism and esotericism into Christianity. This is when we see groups like the Millerites, you know, come up. It's technically the Millerites are right before what we consider to be the period of the Third Great Awakening. You know, they're the folks who go up on the hill and say, oh, this is it. Here comes the rapture. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't come. And they become the, 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 the what is it, the Latter-day Saints, the Advent people, which, you know, that's great. That's cool. It's also a period, and it's, this is where I tend to focus on a lot of things in my more kind of extremism, conspiracism side of things. It's also where beliefs from overseas and Europe, you know, Franz Mesmer, big deal overseas. A lot of spooky mysticism stuff that's very popular overseas comes over to America, is folded into Christianity. And we see that crop up in Christian science. Spiritual healing starts to become more common and more embraced by kind of the mainstream and, and kind of Crank and crack medicine, quack medicine becomes a bigger deal in the mid and late 1800s during the Third Great Awakening, which, you know, we still see that today. And that's great. And that's, I want to note, part one of that answer. <laughs> you asked me a real doozy. Another thing I think is interesting, and one of the, the flex points in the transformation in the 1800s with American identity and the American kind of 
essence, and this is without even touching on 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 the Civil War directly. I think a, a lens to look through it through. When I say this as a as a Jew in America, early in American history, American Jews by and large white. It's an interesting thing to think about, like you know, ethnic Jews. Most ethnic Jews are light skinned. Some of us, like me, are of the tanning white people variety. But back in the day, if you were a Jew in America, you were just a white person. As the 1800s progressed and, you know, we had all these revolutions, all this political unrest in overseas in Europe. Actually, a really good example. No kidding, is my family. My, my ancestry is more like southern France and, and whatever. When, you know, France unified did its whole thing, we were cool in Provence, but then France it was all Provence, and they go like, nope, you got to go to Italy. And then Napoleon takes over. Oh, you can come back. And also Italy is a thing now. Italy doesn't want you, so you come back to France. And it's a whole thing. A lot of people in that part of Europe are like, screw this. We're going to go to America because this is just, this, is, this sucks. And that's where like a lot of people, you know, because of all these like jostling of borders and, and political unrest, a lot of Jews are coming over. But once those Jews aren't coming from like the cool parts of Germany, as far as America is concerned, or like, some of the cooler parts of France, wherever, once they're coming from like Poland or East Germany or, you know, the parts of Europe that like Americans are, or I guess were, still kind of are, bigoted against, suddenly Jews weren't white anymore. They were Jews. And there is this growing idea that American whiteness is a club. And it's a club that like, if you're Italian, if you're Polish, if you're Czech, if you're Russian, you're like, are you really white? I don't know, you're, you're Irish. You're not really country club white, is the thing. And it's this, this changing kind of distillation of American power structure that starts to take place throughout the middle and late 1800s, especially in the aftermath of the Civil War, as urbanization and industrialization spreads throughout America. And especially as Americans move westward, especially as like, you know, this, the city becomes a concept, you know, of course, along the eastern seaboard, but as cities spread throughout the country, there's this idea of like, we got to make sure the right people are running the cities, the right people are building the roads. And it's not those nice, you know, Scotch Irish people. Those are the ones who get to be in the country clubs. And, and that idea of like, kind of the power structure of capital W whiteness in America, that's when it really solidifies. Because before, you know, 1840, 1830, it's not really a thing. Cena? Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. That's okay. No, I was just kind of mulling over what you, you, you were saying. I, I couldn't tell if you were pausing to make a point or... <laughs> I just didn't want to run you into the ground there. That was a lot of... That was a long... Oh, no, no, that's perfect. I think... Like to, to kind of build on your previous point, the idea of a true correct versus factual, that is something like something that is true or correct is kind of rooted in, in the vibes and the feeling, whereas okay. where facts are facts. When we start approaching this period, the 19th century, what do you feel like that people get really, really wrong? Because I, I think like in, in kind of my digging into Foner, and, and reconstruction, the big one. So it's like the 800 page magnum opus. It, it kind of blew my mind about kind of the fissures and the divisions. I always, always had kind of thought that things were much more cleaner. 
like in mm-hmm. the sense of there were the unionists, there are the cessationists, or the, oh, yeah. you know, and, and and those lines are very clear. And you know, there there might be a little mobility between those two political points, but it's the line is clear. And then I started reading Foner, and it's like, no, 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 no. There's the Republicans, there's the radical Republicans, there's Andy Johnson, who's kind of cool with slavery. I'm not too sure. And then there's the Tennessee Unionists. And it just yeah. it, it, it's like you're getting into like the taxonomy of cats almost like it's just like huge that's a good way to put it i love that yeah but so, go ahead for you like you know what do you see as people like getting really wrong either as a methodological point as a research point or as just straight up facts i so i actually think that, i think the, the the thing people beef most consistently that, that i understand and, and like totally get and relate to and it's, it's a thing that like i think people are best served anytime you dig into history anytime you read about a person you read about a period that you've got to have in the back of your head and i think it's a it's a it's a ground rule thing and it's 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 one of the things that sounds like a joke and it's just true if you're reading about a person from the past and this is a thing that will be true about us one day because this is how time works. This is how culture works. If you're reading about someone from the past and you go, oh man, I really like this person. They, they, they got a way of viewing things that just feels timeless. Like you could update the language of this and oh man, this would, this would hit so smooth today. I love these views. Here's the thing. Everybody hated that person and they were glad when that person died. Like they, they may have had two friends and those two friends were like, oh no, here comes this asshole. And, and I'm talking about Thomas Paine because there's basically no one else like that. Like a really good example. And, and, and I, I'm speaking to everyone hearing my voice. Please don't get mad at me. Maybe the worst example of this that everybody hates is John Brown. John Brown, amazing human being, hero. We all love John Brown. John Brown's a great guy. John Brown had, because he was Calvinist, had not great views about women. And because he was alive in the 1800s, had not great views about Native Americans. Now, not a bad guy. Great, great guy, hero. We love John Brown. But like, he was alive in the 1800s. Spoilers. Basically, everybody alive in the 1800s was like a... Cena, can I cuss on your show? Like a little? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, John Brown, like like everybody else in the 1800s, was at least kind of a piece of shit. Now, that was a time <laughs> when a lot of people were like, hey, I love slavery. Slavery's cool. I'm a white nationalist because it's the 1800s. It, why, I, that's, being a white nationalist is the default. The majority of people were white nationalists. So like John Brown chopping people up with swords to fight slavery and having some not cool takes about Native Americans and women who cares not a big deal that's fine you're like a super duper mega calvinist i can't believe that's the worst thing you think all right he gets a pass on that it's like another really good example is actually okay so there's a i'm I'm gonna go off on a tangent because that is my thing here i'm i'm the so i'm so good at tangents okay just i just talked about thomas paine i want to talk if i can about the idea and this is the thing that people do mess up and it is an easy thing to mess up and i think the framework to get it right is so simple and straightforward there's a thing people say so often in bad faith and it is an exercise that you do need to be able to do of reading people and events in the context of of their contemporary period and you know it's the idea of like well you gotta you gotta know george washington was a man of his time like what 
there were lots of people who were like terrible people about the Snyders of the day. And again, like, here's the thing. Uh, another guy I, I, I like, one of the founders I, I genuinely like is Sam Adams. Okay. Here's the thing that's cool about Sam Adams. Guy didn't write a lot. And he owned like a slave briefly when he married his wife, whose name I just forgot because she didn't really do anything. And it sucks because here's the thing about the 1700s because everybody was evil back then. If you married someone and they owned a slave, suddenly you own a slave. Now it's the 1700s, okay? And it's the late 1700s. Here's, 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 we're going to do a exercise. You're Sam Adams, okay? If you let that person go, it, someone can just come get that, that slave. And now they're a slave again. Now, you don't know what is going to happen to that person. Is it going to be cool for them? Is it going to be bad for them? Are they going to get grounded to cat food? You just don't know. Now, Sam Adams, to his credit, did the absolute best thing he could and let that person be a freedman. And as far as we know, they did fine. Everything worked out. He did the exact correct thing you're supposed to do. Let him go. Everything's cool. He basically owned a slave for like five minutes. And you know what, Sam Adams? Dope. Awesome. Once he was done being a founding father, he fucked off. Because depending on how you want to read it, he looked around and went, you know, I can't fix this. I'm going to go brew beer. Goodbye, everybody. See you in hell. And just went to go live in a shack in the woods with his wife. And you know what? That's what I would do. I, I same, King, so true. <laughs> like, and I'm not saying like he's, he's innocent. He probably had some terrible god-awful opinions because it was the 1700s basically everybody did again the only person who had good opinions in the 1700s that looked like modern opinions was thomas Paine, and everybody hated him like six people came to his funeral his friends wrote they were glad he died like, <laughs> france almost murdered him oh that's, that's I, I feel so bad for thomas Paine now like I didn't... he was a huge asshole he was like a massive oh. massive massive asshole and, and, and he admitted it okay. he was like i hate everybody you're all racist <laughs> george washington is like I, he, he called him like a profligate liar and a traitor and a, he was i mean he was so very there, online before online he would have been such a poster it would have been amazing he would have been one of those people writing like 40 page or 40 post twitter threads about like, oh, it would have been great. He would have been writing like DOD charts of just like, here's why you're all raised. So he's got a thing on, he's got a treatise on like colonialism and why it's bad and why if America does not end slavery right now, right today, got to do it. It's just a, a failed state that should be destroyed. It's so good. It's a modern opinion in the 1770s. It's fantastic stuff. And no one listened to him. <laughs> Because why would they? Everyone was a white nationalist in the 1700s. Like, yeah. And, 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 you know, Ben Franklin, who, you know, the whoremonger, nothing wrong with that. It took him seeing, like, a white... Now, again, Ben Franklin was an old guy at the time. He was really a dad kind of guy. He saw a white kid and black kid playing together and was like, wait a minute. Uh-oh. I'm, I'm, I'm a racist. And he got better. He, he realized, like, I'm not going to do this. And, and here's what I'm going to say about that. Do you decide, well, you should have known better, my man, or, well, hold on, you, you lived in a, a society of monstrous, horrific racism, of everybody having to kind of have this, like, cognitive dissonance about being just horrific racists. And then the second you saw, like, a, a very human moment, you went, oh, wait a minute, that's racism. And I'm not going to do it anymore. 
I will actually say this, how, how you, you determine whether, you know, what side that falls on, I think is one, a question of like how it impacts you as a person. And two, it is how you want to frame individual responsibility and individual power. It's, it's, and I, I dare say, whether or not you're doing great man history. And that's where I would, you know, jump forward a little bit and go to William Tecumseh Sherman. Because here's the thing. Sherman understood, like a lot of people, later on, we got to win this war. We got we to fight the South. And a lot of people, early on in the Civil War, on both sides, had this very, you know, we are going to drive them into the earth and we're going to destroy the, the heathen Southerner or Northerner. Because both, both sides were like, we're going to just do a genocide on the other team during the Civil War in the lead up to it. And, and we're going we're gonna to wreck them. And, and Sherman was not initially like that. He actually had the, the Abe Lincoln stance of like, we're going to go down there. We're going to fight the battles. We're going to leave the people alone. And then he saw like, oh, no, 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 no. The people are the problem. <laughs> the people, people are causing us some issues. And we got to drive them into the earth. And then he, you know, started setting shit on fire because that's what you had to do. And then, as people might, might, might know, he was a part of America's terrible history with Americans and westward expansion. And a thing that is, that is fraught in reading that with Sherman and, and, and including U- U.S. Grant is America's full of people like that because that was the policy of this country. That was the imperialism of America. And I think a, a troubling thing that we do in this country is instead of saying America did this, this was the state. This was the society. We will go, this was individuals in the culture. This was William Tecumseh Sherman, who burned Atlanta and was mean to, to Southern civilians. Ooh, who was then a, a, a genocide doer. Well, no. General Sherman basically saw himself as a gun fueled by booze. who was basically just an extension of the will of the country that preserved the union then afterward expanded westward and he said himself i hate doing this i think this uh, not even like i hate it from a moral standpoint i don't this is not my kind of war this is not a thing that i'm good at i don't want to do this but it's my job and it is the thing the country is doing so i am doing it which is basically the nuremberg defense but it is a commentary on the fact of it is the policy of the country. It is a thing the country did. And I think a, a thing that, you know, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of when we study, especially this period of American history, a period that involves slavery, a period that involves, you know, the failure of reconstruction, a period that involves westward expansion, all these fraught things, I mean, Dred Scott, for God's sakes, like we have to have this mindset of, is it, loose individuals doing bad or is it the culture is it the society and and by focusing on individuals i think we tend to because sometimes it is individuals sometimes it's really really terrible people for sure but sometimes it is the society sometimes it is the state and we can give the society a pass by focusing on individuals and i think that is a thing that like we do because we identify with the society or it is easier it is more you know compactifiable in our heads by focusing on individuals 
I think that's interesting because I think in, in reading, again, I returned to Phoner because obviously I mean, if you look at my Twitter account, I'm reading mm-hmm. it every night. This kind of distinction that Phoner drives between Abe Lincoln and Andrew Johnson. And he does it through the lens of how they treated Black people. So he starts off with this idea that they're both racists, right? But Lincoln ends up being a man of his time. He has these kind of crude ideas about, you know, Black people. And, but he, he has this willingness to meet, you know, Black people and, and talk to them and engage with them. Whereas some of the quotes from Andrew Johnson are just like, you know, wow, that's super racist. I I, I guess my point here is, you know, is it, when we start judging people, when we start judging historical figures, how do we kind of incorporate forgiveness? You know, is, is forgiveness even kind of, you know, a useful kind of word here? Because I think like, you know, you look at Lincoln, you know, the sum of his works are you know, ultimately good for the country, right? Emancipation Proclamation unites the country, whereas Andrew Johnson kind of allowed the, you know, this is kind of a crude point, but he allowed the slave power to kind of exist, to kind of persist just without slavery. So then, again, you know, where do we, in our judgments, where do we kind of factor forgiveness and not even forgiveness, like a purposeful edit, right? You're not going to get like, oh, Lincoln was a racist and he was a man of his time in like high school textbooks, right? So so in your view, like, you know, forgiveness, editing the narrative, kind of what is the interplay there? And and is it necessary in order to kind of weave a narrative? So I think think there's two things in that. One, and I'm going to dunk on Fona for a second. I'm going to, I'm going to, pull off at a wide spot and we're going to dunk on Fona for a second because I because specifically there's a, thing I, there's a thing I know Fona does and a lot of people do and I'm what I'm not going to say is that Fona's doing lost cause stuff because he's not but it is a thing that lost cause people who say well you know Lincoln's a he's a gosh darn racist ain't he and it's like well one you're you're saying that to traffic and racism too though chief but like the specifically you know a thing people like to cite is oh man I'm gonna forget what speech it was where he talks about like hey if I could if I could you know, maintain the union by freeing no slaves or no black people, I would. If I could maintain the union by freeing, you know, a few, I would. If I maintain it by freeing all the slaves, I would. All, all that stuff, right? It is worth remembering anytime Lincoln is talking publicly, and this is including in his debates, right? He is talking to a country of white supremacists, white nationalists. He is talking to a white nationalist country, like through and through, to its core. America's white nationalists. It is worth remembering that, and, and again, this is a thing that you can go down a weird road with. You can do lost cause or shit with. We are talking about a movement that is in opposition to people who are in support of slavery. Okay, a lot of abolitionists believed in phrenology. A lot of abolitionists who, when they were confronted with, you know, well, if you free all the slaves, they're gonna they're gonna rise up and do a slave rebellion. You know, they're gonna they're gonna kill all the white people. And there were abolitionists. Who, who believed in abolition, who believed in like the amelioration of the condition of the black, pre- of black people, black man, and would say, well, no, black people are inherently servile and they would never do that because they're too passive, which is monstrous and racist, but they still believed that even if they were basically a subspecies of human, 
slavery was a monstrous condition that no one should live under because that's how vile slavery is. That's how fucked up and racist and just bonkers the 1800s was, was that people who thought that like you could measure people's skulls to find out how smart they were or whatever were still like, no, slavery's evil though. Shouldn't do it, right? I, I, th- I think the... And it's, but it's worth for me, like, so when, so when Lincoln was talking about stuff, like, again, you know, I, I, if I could preserve the union by not freeing any slaves, I would. When he said that, the Emancipation Proclamation was already written. It was en route to being enacted. I, I, and that is the thing I know that, like, Foner and several others will go, well, Lincoln was a racist. Well, okay, but we know that he was going to free the slaves. We know that the, the Civil War was already about slavery and it was about to be the the you know paramount and plenary purpose of the civil war it was about to explode into being primarily about slavery and it was about to be to the point that you know the white nationalist cause in the north when the the draft riots kicked off because of the emancipation proclamation the union was going to crack down on that shit it was a divisive thing in the North because that is how racist this country is or was, is, but was <laughs> like, it, it is, is this, I, again, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, Foner is by far not the worst example. I'm not, I'm not going to throw him under those, but, but it is a thing that like consistently sticks in my craw. The one area where I do think you get to criticize Lincoln, some emphasis on some, because we cannot know his heart. We cannot know. Like we we do not we do not have sufficient context. Is that Lincoln, like a lot of abolitionists of the day, were they they proposed a a a, a, a colonialist solution to boy I hate that word solution to the strife of abolition. Basically, an extension of the Monroe Doctrine, the Monroe policy of like we don't know how the hell all these fucking crazy ass white people in America are going to put up with a bunch of freed black people. Maybe maybe we should send them back to Africa. Maybe we should try somewhere in like, you know, Grand Colombia or something. You know, what do we what do we do? Because they can't stay here. Because all these gosh dang racists, all these racist white people, there's going to be a big problem. And that was a thing that Lincoln was not the loudest advocate of, but he talked about on and off. We don't know. We, we will never know, as far as we're aware. There's not like some secret, you know. Lincoln diary floating around with like stickers all over it that we, we haven't found it yet. Maybe it's out there where he's like, Oh, by the way, JK, I was saying it to appease the racists. We don't know. And that is an area where like, I think, I think the more legitimate criticism of Lincoln is from a like man of his time perspective, pretty unproblematic fave. I think, I think, you know, he, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I, you can definitely say the best thing Lincoln did for his own legacy was getting shot because who knows what he would have done after. But I don't know. I, I, I really, I really issue a lot of like, oh, Lincoln was a secret racist or he was a low-key racist. Like again, by 1800 standards, he was a woke king, you know, which is not a high bar in the mid 1800s, but it is a bar. Yeah. I, I, again, that's a wide spot in the road that I spent way too long at, but it, it's, it's a thing I think is really important to stress. And it is a good example of like, you know, the lens through which we view people. As for the forgiveness question, I think a critical thing is, is why we are doing it. Because personally, 
if it is long enough ago, I don't, I don't know that forgiveness is the right word. I think it's a question of like examining the, it's why we're doing it. Like, why, why do we feel the need to forgive people from our past? Because, because frankly, like, I think, I think generally the emphasis placed on forgiveness broadly, contemporarily and historically, I think is unnecessary. I think if we are looking to people and we see a lot of ourselves in them, which is natural, it's very human, we see places that they failed that we think we might fail. And we want to forgive them for failings that we think we would commit. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the wrong instinct. The, the instinct is to learn from that, which is what history is for. It is what the narrative of history is for. That is basically a moral lesson. It is why we have these different tools, lenses, models, whatever word you want to use here, for examining history, rather than just like, again, chronicling, which is just, this happened on this date, this happened on this date, this happened on this date, in kind of a disconnected you know, way. It is a methodology of viewing history through different approaches and, you know, kind of different structures, whether that is a societal view, a cultural view, that kind of Marxist power structure way, you know, whatever way you want to look at it. I I don't know that, like, generally taking it from a forgiveness approach is wholly necessary. And again, I would, would, you know, use the Lincoln thing as an example. If we start from a place of forgiveness, I think we brush aside that, well, he would have needed to lie to a country dominated or with a plurality probably a majority definitely a majority of white nationalists instead of well he said this bad thing but it's okay it was a man of his time it's well why did he say this bad thing what rationale if he believed it it was the day if he didn't believe it why would he say it why would he say this thing that did not comport with the actions that he took well it was the 1850s and America, much as it has its problems now, had way more back then. And that lens of, you know, not necessarily forgiving, but examining, I think produces more interesting, air quotes, truths than jumping to forgiveness. If that tracks. No, it does. And I think, I think for the average person, for the normie, right, the, mm-hmm. there is a tendency to craft a a lens you already have a lens in your head right good guys bad guys right there are the abolitionists are good people the the slavers are bad people i mean obviously it depends on the individual but something that i kind of find fascinating as i started digging into the history of abolition it was like so many crazy things popped out of me it was just like you know the reason that we should free blacks is not because they're individuals, but because we believe in free labor. And it, it, it just blew my mind that, that, that suffrage and citizenship for black people doesn't become an issue until Reconstruction, until 1865, 1866, when you start having the debate for the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And it was just, I was like, holy crow, like this is, it, it blew my mind because it was just, I had accepted the fact that abolitionists were the good guys. So because I accepted that they were the good guys, I didn't really question like the position of abolition. Like, where is it coming from? What is that source? What is that sort of, you know, what, what is the outcomes they want? So, I, so I'm kind of, I want you to kind of expand on this idea of the idea of a hero and a villain in history, right? Can we sort of take Joseph Campbell's heroic cycle and say like, 
and kind of paint history using that, that sort of setup that there's clearly good guys and there's clearly bad guys or whatever. Who that's so I, well, I'm going to, I'm going to say this I, <laughs> broadly, broadly. Yeah. The, the folks fighting on the side of slavery, bad guys, you know, Jefferson Davis is the villain of the civil war. I will, I will, I will go so far as to say this, that, you know, General Lee, gen- oh God, this, this sentence is going to suck. General Lee was, was, was one of the villains as a rule of the civil war. He had a terrible like opinion of the, the ground level soldier in his army. There is a reason that his casualty rate was catastrophic. He had a terrible opinion of the other generals under his command and, and the commanders therein. He, he was a, a real motherfucker. He sucked. He also wasn't a very good commander, but we're not going to, I, you know, I, I can talk about battles and stuff, but that's what we're doing here. That, that's, a, that's a whole different show. But like, I, there are definitely like, you know, it is, it is not, it is not, it is not Star Wars, the Clone Wars. There are not heroes on both sides, even though the other side is, you know, robots. No, it's, it's, it's like, there's definitely a bad side in the Civil War. I think one of the things that is, is fascinating to me, because you, you mentioned like that there are these kind of weird ideologies in abolition and pop up in reconstruction around suffrage and all this stuff. I think that is, that is, and again, we, it comes up when we talk about like nationalism and, you know, history and the nation state and all this stuff. It is, it is, I think it's one of the reasons why like America is this very weird country. And as, you know, we talked about this before we started and, and I'll, I'll bleed some of this into here. It's the thing I admit, I really struggle with as someone who was raised partially in America and partially overseas. Like it's, it's an area where like my brain does not fully connect with American culture now and then. That, the idea of like what a nation is and like who you are as part of a nation for people who are, you know, you know, red blooded hot dog eating Americans. That was the worst American accent I could do, but no, like it's, it's a very weird thing here. It's a very specific thing here. And it's a thing that does not exist in other countries. And it is because America became America because of the civil war before the civil war, you had the union of the States. And if you were from, Ohio, you were a o- Ohioan. Woof. You were you were you were a New Yorker, or you were a Georgian, or a Floridian, or whatever the hell that you were, a, a Virginian. Sure, but after the Civil War, the idea of American—you were from America—really started to solidify. And what that means was this rapidly evolving concept, and and that's really tricky in other societies like and again this is a concept that like exists in history that like early on the focus in history was society basically the state what is the history of a society what is a society's place in history what do societies do and then it evolves into culture what do cultures do how do cultures interact how does you know what is the power struggle within a culture it's kind of that marxist thing there and like you know, and even like, what is the interaction between a culture and a society? Like, how does, how does culture evolve within a society? But like, still cultural. And like, still though in America, like this, this growing conception of like citizenship and society and nationalism and patriotism even is very specifically American conception that exists in this like very weird kind of country. And like, 
it's it's this thing that like has good elements to it like there is not a a very clear specific national myth in america the, the way that there is in some other countries like i i will say like like i'm going to dunk on france here french nationalism is insane it's bonkers there's a whole i'm going to talk very briefly about this i swear to god you know france is a country that has colonies in like you know corsica it's a really good example. Like they just they just have an island and it sucks that they do. And they have like weird nationalists in France and like the bad kind of nationalists, you know, the, the, the right wing kind who are like, oh, man, I'm so horny and passionate about my it's cool that we're doing colonialism in Corsica. And just recently they had riots by the good kind of nationalists in Corsica who want to be Corsicans and not, you know, colonized by the French, because that's how weird like regional and and kind of the identity of where you live more than quote-unquote national identity is not in america is like it's 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 so different because american nationalism is this incredibly recent invention that was solidified through the 1880s and really well into the 1900s i mean you can argue that it wasn't finished into the 1950s and 60s it's so new invention there are people alive today who were alive when it was still this kind of like forming coagulating idea. And it's, it's why I think like, you know, abolition was this very kind of hodgepodge idea because even though there were abolitionists in the 1700s, slavery was a part of the colonial identity of this country. And there wasn't a really a colonial identity, like the, the, the Puritans, the, the, the kind of, because like okay so like people came in from from jamestown or, or to to jamestown from england they weren't freedom seeking you know i'm here to start a new society right no they were they were here to make money for the crown to increase their profile as english colonists as english citizens and even a lot of the people who like when the colonies were established came here they came here to make their money in english colonies as english citizens they were not escaping persecution they were not looking to be americans they were looking to be english somewhere else and do well as english citizens somewhere else because here there was a place there was space to grow as english in a colony and like i think it is a thing that is so estranged to us as present-day americans that we just we, we don't have a conception for it and and slavery and that kind of oppression and and that system of power is so entrenched into a pre-American world that abolition just it forming alongside the American national identity, like it means abolition looks really weird, is what I'm saying. <laughs> like it means that like the idea of citizenship forming alongside the idea of abolition means that like abolition did not have time to become normal, basically. I mean, what I find fascinating and is this idea that at the core of American nationalism is this tension of white nationalist, white supremacist, and then on the other side is this, multi, this idea of a multiracial democracy, right? That everyone gets citizenship, everyone is a citizen, you know, and everybody is legally accepted, you know, culturally, maybe not, but legally, yes. And 
I, I like this, this idea that you kind of hinted at was that the Civil War and its resolution represents the birth of modern American nationalism. And because that, because that argument kind of implies like, like you, you get rid of the institution of slavery, but you don't get rid of the underlying cultural and societal ideas that kind of built slavery, right? So you, yeah. you get rid of bondage, but you still see, you know, the ideas of black suffrage and black empowerment as something, you know, you know, at its most benign level as something you don't want to do at its most viscerally violent. It kind of, you know, led to the, to the, to the race of, to the clan, the first iteration of the clan being formed. So, so I'm, I'm kind of curious then, like when we talk about nationalism and the creation of nationalism, you know, how do we relate historical understanding to that concept of nationalism because at at the same time like you know in our modernity you have the 1619 project that it goes you know all in on the idea that we're a white supremacist country then you have pushback on that you have in the early 20th century you have the dunning school saying that reconstruction was a failure and is a failure because of the north and 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 black people and you know then you have Dubois, W-E-B Dubois, uh, Dubois or Dubois, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that. I was supposed to say I'm about. <laughs> who, who kind of pushed back on the Dunning School. So then, like, I'm just interested, like, at, really at its core, the idea of, the, of history, its creation, and understanding nationalism. And, and, and that is another PhD question. I am so sorry. <laughs> No, it's okay. So, so I, so I will say this first off, and this is this is, oh man, with the with the understanding that I'm I'm in danger of kind of like wading out of my depth here. I'm I'm gonna drop a hot take. Ninety nine percent of the time, when people say Reconstruction failed because of the North, either knowingly or unknowingly, actively or passively people are trafficking in lost cause conspiracism. We are trafficking a conspiracy theory that's at its core racist. That is white nationalist. That is one of the like oldest conspiracy theories in this country. And I and I I and I, and I, I, I I'm sounding kind of like harsh right now, but like I really think it is absolutely completely necessary to be kind of unbending on there is there are criticisms to be made about the unwillingness of the North and, and Northern politicians to commit to U.S. Grant's harshness against the Klan and against white nationalists. In the exact same way, I would say that, you know, Ike Eisenhower can criticize a lot about him. One of my criticisms is that he did not have, like, those troops open up on those people who felt the need to yell at kids trying to go to school. Now, you can say that's too harsh, but I kind of think the resolution of Kent State and Little Rock should have been flipped. Now, you know, call that problematic if you will but you know i take a pretty hard stance against white nationalism <laughs> like yeah we we fought a whole war that you can't do that and and sure at the same time reconstruction has many reasons for not having succeeded. the aims of reconstruction failed for a number of reasons one of them is vastly aggressively attributable to the fact that this you know southern whites fought tooth and nail to disenfranchise politically 
economically and socially, not primarily, primarily black people, Northern whites, rich Northern whites did so to a, to a degree. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that, but it primarily was a Southern effort. And it is absolutely worth noting that the Klan was a domestic terrorist organization that threatened, hey, we're going we're gonna to fight and die to tear apart this country if you basically just don't give this up. And the American government blinked. Now you can say, oh, that's, that's proof that they weren't committed to the cause. Yeah, okay, maybe. But it was basically like a continuation of the Civil War. And that was a heavily Southern-led effort. And, and there's really no other way to look at it, that it was, it was driven by, you know, white nationalists. It was not, it was not ooh, you know, early proto-liberals didn't really care, whatever. No, it was, it was radical white nationalist terrorists. It was a problem, frankly, we have today. Like, I, I, I think blaming that on, on, on moderates or whatever, primarily, like, I, I, I think that's unfair. It's a, it's a misread of history. And again, it's, it's, it's kind of, it is that, well, well, Abe Lincoln was a secret racist, and that's why he's the real villain of the Civil War. That's lost cause stuff. Like, it's, it's ignoring the fact that, like, well, okay, yeah, may, maybe the Union wasn't perfect, the North wasn't perfect or whatever, but, like, in opposition to what? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, the various abolition people weren't ideal champions of the cause in, op- in opposition to what? Because remember, it's the 1800s. Everybody kind of sucks. It was over 100 years ago. Everybody's got bad takes. So, and, and one of the things I, I will note is that 100 years from now, there is going to be something that people look at us and go like, oh my God, you were doing what? And, and I, I will say spoilers. My, my personal opinion is that it will be factory farming. People are going to go, I'm sorry, you're doing what to chickens? Oh my God. That's, that's why I don't eat factory farm grown meat. I think it's monstrous. And I think 100 years from now, people are going to think that we're a bunch of ghouls for doing it. And they're, and our, you know, great, great grandchildren are going to like totally judge us and probably not be wrong to do so or whatever. And some people today will think, oh, namby pamby, effeminate, weak, pencil neck losers of the future. Just like people from the 1800s. If you met one of them, they'd think that we were weak, you know, no, no work ethic having losers, whatever the hell. Sure. Like, because that's how time works. Yeah. And that's, I know that's like a long way to go about that, but that, that's, I, I will admit, that is a thing that like kind of sticks in my craw about that complaint about the, you know, the failure of reconstruction, whatever. I will admit, what, what was the, the second half of that? I don't, I didn't, I, I want to make sure that I, I'm not like totally beefing because the, the back end of that was really important. Holy crow. Sorry. When we, when we think about nationalism, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And how do we relate let me let me ask it a different way. Mm-hmm. If if history is sort of a competition, it's a fundamentally adversarial, right? You have mm-hmm. the lost causers, you have the historian historians, and you you're, they're coin they're butting heads. Mm-hmm. You know how does that play into the creation of nationalism? Because you know I, I I think like the you know at the core of the American project, it seems like you have this strain of white supremacist white nationalist thinking mm-hmm. and then you have this other strain of multiracial democracy yeah. you know whatever but you know when we think about the role of the historian and the role of history you know how do we think about that what is that relationship to you and sort of your understanding so i'm, I'm gonna i'm going to 
show my hand here, display some of my own politics. I, I tend to be a little bit more of the anti-authoritarian mindset. At the same time, I, we do be living in a society, and I will admit, there are benefits to living in a society. I don't know about you, but I, I drank some water today. And I did not get some kind of terrible doo-doo disease that made me oh so sick. I, I just drank some water and it was fine. And you know what? I, I like that a lot. I like not having cholera, Cena. I think it's pretty dope. Again, you maybe you like cholera. I don't know. So I think to a certain degree in the, you know, capital S society sense, it's, it's, it's one of our better inventions as a species. Sure. I like, I like medicine. I like, you know antibiotics, whatever. There are ways that we can do it better. I think, I think a question worth asking is, and this is, this, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this in the political theory standpoint here. We're not talking necessarily like, got to be careful with this word. It's a very loaded word, especially in America. What do we mean by nationalism? And does nationalism have to be bad? Because like I said earlier, you know, let's talk about French nationalism, right? And French nationalism is colonialism, it's imperialism. And then I mentioned, you know, the little town of Ireland off the coast of it, coast of Italy, my God, Corsica. Corsican nationalism, the largely left-wing socialist movement. It's about liberation. They don't want to be colonized. I would say that's not a bad movement. I'm not going to, other things that I, I, I will not say on your show, I want to get in trouble. But, you know, I, I, one of those is good, arguably. One of those is bad, arguably. How we determine which is which is up to our view of history. It's up to our view of society. And it's up to like what our view of the society, again, capital T, capital S, the society, what that should be and what that means to us. And I think that is something that like, that is the role of history, sociology. That is an ongoing project. It is why we have different forms of historiography. It's why we have, you know, Hegelian theory. It's why we have Marxist theory. It's why we have W.B. Du Bois. It's why we have Gramscian history. All these different forms of historiography that are out there as a lens to interpret what society is for. And as someone who is a behavioral economist, I look to people like Simmel, who ironically is kind of a prelude to this guy, Max Weber, or Weber, German, sorry, who frankly is, is he is a historian, but Max Weber is terrible. It's awful. You don't need to read Max Weber. He sucks. But you know, Georg Simmel talks a lot about, you know, the, the metropolis and like what living in a large society does to us as people. Talks a lot about like the effects of smaller cultures within larger cultures and kind of how those interact. And a funny thing about that is that you can take that and put that into the context of what's called the Chicago School. And a lot of like really awful policing stuff comes out of that. And it's no good. It's, it's not great. <laughs> but alternatively, if you kind of stick with, with, with Georg Simmel, you get a really useful way of understanding like a larger society, a larger culture, because those are two things in one, a society and a culture are made up of smaller elements. And those small elements within the larger element have an interaction that creates interchange, that create, you know, constant state of flux that grows, that contracts, that grows and contracts, that, 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 keeps it vital and alive as a system. And that is what society is. That is what the superculture is. And in a way that is like very useful for interpretation. And again, we're talking more about like sociology than pure history when we talk about Simmel. And I think like, if you want to talk about that being the nation, that's great. If you want to talk about the nation as a way of controlling people, if you want to talk about a way of, of the nation as like a, a, an organization of people, of a hierarchy, 
again, we're getting into like the hegemony or getting into the Gramsci stuff. Uh, <laughs> that's almost inherently, inherently racist. That's getting into where I, I, I tend to agree with like the 1619 project of, of like, you know, hey, this is a white nationalist country and there's no redemption from it. Because yeah, America as it stands is a white nationalist project. What I tend to ask, and I think it's a fair question, and it's what, it's what kind of, you know, for whatever criticisms some people have of it, who aren't just doing bad faith, like, oh, well, this, you know, this is racist against white people. I hate it. Whatever valid criticisms there are of it. I think like the thing that you take from it is like, yeah, there's a lot of things here that are true and accurate that are worth looking at. Where do we go from here? What do we do next? How, if, if we're going to do this thing, if, if this country, if this society is going to continue to exist, and, and I, I don't know that there's a way to like have it stop existing that's not horrifying, how do we do that? Where do we go from here? And I don't think you can answer any part of that question without looking at history and, and figuring out how we got from past to present. That's a good point. I kind of want to switch footing a bit. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say that we're both very online. I think the... Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I've been accused of of some things and have been posting. Just a wee bit of posting here and there. (laughs) So I should have said this at the beginning of the conversation, but the origins of our talk was this John Brown meme that I found. It's kind of... I gotta find it. It's oh no, I'm terrified. Oh no, I have to keep scrolling. It's basically it's like the meme shirt genre, like slavery. Oh, is it the the? Hang on, I know what you're talking about. This is slavery is fuck. Four hundred million dead Confederates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Born, <laughs> born to raid. Born to raid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Born to raid. That, that south that, is a fuck. Yes, yes, yes. South is a fuck. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Yeah. So, I guess, I guess, my question is, is when we start examining history mm-hmm. like like it I, I think for me it's very tempting that everybody is like cena right they they have six library cards they own a pile of books that makes the movers cry out in pain so the mover is like when we moved into this into this unit our the movers were like very fit like very like gung-ho dudes and then they they lifted up the crates with my books in it and you could literally hear the hernia from a mile away but i'm all over the place but you know what happens when our understanding of history of of the study of history and that sort of intellectual part of history Mm -hmm. kind of hits and merges with the online like so twitter however you want to define it right twitter tumblr 4chan you know, you, you can take your pick. Man. <laughs> I mean, like, what happens when you basically are boiling stuff down to memes? Mm-hmm. Like, it's the Sherman meme or the the John Brown meme or, gosh, there's so many, just like, oh, Sher- yeah. I think the Sherman meme is the most infamous where it's the laser eyes and oh, yeah. uh, what have you, but. I'm gonna, uh, so here's the, yeah. you were hoving so darkly into, like, my area of, like, so for those who don't know, I'm I'm also in the zone of, like, you know, conspiracism extremism acceleration research all that stuff great cool whatever jerk off motion and a thing i spend a lot of time talking about is kind of modes of communication modes of information theory that if you really 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 dig down into it 
is the plot of Metal Gear Solid 2. <laughs> and I joke about that to a certain extent, but I, I, I like to say that like I am an extension of, and, and boy, some people are going to hear this and their the brand's going to catch fire. Imagine if like Richard Dawkins didn't, because he's always been a, a real a real asshole, but imagine if he didn't totally go like completely insane with new atheism and kept writing books and also like was like, ah, hey, you know, medics isn't great. What if I like also did semiotics too? Because that's like an area that I focus on a lot. And I think like one of the things that's, it's, you know, so his history and historiography is a very, it's a field that's very focused on memetics. It's a field that's very much linguistic, that's very much focused on language, how we use it, and, and ideas stay pretty formalized. Even when we discuss kind of more visceral, symbolic concepts, ideally, putting a lot of weight on that word, ideally, like, you know, we're, we're staying very much in the realm of formalized language. What I think is, is neat, and this is where, like, you know, he, we're all fundamentally we're still we're still living in the bronze age baby you know we're still in classical society here eventually history turns back into a narrative because it is what we as humans understand best we understand stories we like stories it is it is one of the things that that makes humans different is that we we just get stories and stories at their core what makes a story good is symbolic in nature it is semiotic in nature it's taking you know um, you know mimetics it is taking you know kind of structured constellations of ideas and making them make sense to us in in very you know again there's lots of ways to define kind of mimetics and semiotics and their interactions i'm, I'm not going to do that to people i, I think visceral is kind of the, the easiest way to make that word make sense it's taking you know kind of the structured extreme air quotes fact-based analysis Super air quotes, super, super, super air quotes. And making it kind of compelling in a visceral way. And, and like, that is what in the, you know, neologism of the word, that is what memes are doing when it comes to history, is we are pulling icons from that, you know, factual history. Again, air quotes, factual history, super, super air quotes. And we are, we are finding the things that are compelling to us. We're finding John Brown. We're finding, you know, Sherman. And I think with John Brown, and John Brown's like a, a great example to me because like, I, 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 you know, again, you know, please no one come to my house and, and, and cut my head off. You know, John Brown, Calvinist, 1800s, <sighs> some not super cool opinions about women, Native Americans. It's just how it is. Not, not, not the worst. Again, it's not a high bar. But like, at the end of the day, not a man with a ton of power. It doesn't really matter, is the thing about that didn't really have the ability to act on any of those things. So who cares? It is totally fine to make memes with the guy. I think if you are doing, you know, historical analysis based on the memes, eh, it's not ideal, <laughs> right? If, if your total understanding of John Brown as, you know, someone trying to quote unquote do history is based on memes, that's bad. But like, if you were saying my resistance to oppression is based on this visceral feeling that a guy who is like hardcore about the belief that slavery is bad eh, okay yeah that's good actually and i dare say that is reflective of the last several thousand years of human history that if you're just some random johnny six-pack you know you actually don't need to know the deep historical narrative through multiple layers of analysis and, and structural consideration to learn the lessons 
of a singular figure. No. Herodotus would tell you, you need to just know the story about why this guy was a fucking badass and it was cool that he went out there and kicked a bunch of ass. And now you want to kick a bunch of ass for a good cause. Awesome. Sure. And hopefully no one's like propagandizing to you in a bad way because, yeah. And I would say that if John Brown's telling you, you know, that slavery's bad, that's good propaganda. That's fine. <laughs> I, I So, you know, I guess my takeaway there is that like, the meme is good as long as the message is good. The the visceral reaction to the meme is good as long as the message is good. As long as that is not what you're using to analyze history with. You know, it's 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 fine. It is what I would say is like is also true of historical movies, historical dramas based on a true story stuff. Historical historical accuracy doesn't matter. Like we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> We're going to ignore who Mel Gibson is for a second. Braveheart's fine. It's totally cool. They made a movie about a bunch of Scots just like killing the shit out of like a bunch of English people because like that, that, that is more or less what happened. And also it's, it's cool. It's like a badass movie. Gods and Generals is bad because it's Confederate propaganda. And also it's like boring as hell, but it's also Confederate propaganda. The visceral nature of those two movies is different. It means different things. They're the main different things. One of them's cool. The other one's bad. Both are historically inaccurate. Something that I find interesting though is memes is not only communicative, but kind of, well, yeah, communicative. And I, I, I don't know, like, I think, I think my big struggle is I feel like I'm always competing with birth of a nation, it, it, not directly and not literally, but in the sense that, you know, at the top of the show, you know, it made the joke of phoner pilling, right. Being the Johnny Appleseed of, of Eric Foner's books. And I realized like, like most people don't want that. They don't, they don't want a weird guy talking about social history. Like they want that either that visceral experience of birth of a nation, that really racist visceral experience of birth of the nation or kind of more ben- more benignly like the ken burns it of stuff right they don't want that yeah. civil that sort of social history that in-depth history which i think that was the point you made and so i i think for memes like i really want what i want to do is take figures of reconstruction like mm-hmm. charles sumner and thaddeus stevens and put them kind of in that meme format <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh-huh. I would say Thaddeus Stevens is the easiest one to because one Thaddeus Stevens looks like a Sith, like you could you could you could like make him a little more Palpatine without much effort. And also like because when I talked about like both sides being very like we're gonna we're gonna set fire to the other side and deliver upon them our most righteous fire, so the traitor knows our terrible vengeance. Like that's that's Thaddeus Stevens. Like there's a couple folks who did that stuff, but like Thaddeus Stevens was super super on that short list. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, I th- also think, like, yeah, because it's it just, I think it's so hard to do, like, to communicate the complexities of social history, even though, like, we're kind of, you know, every day we're kind of reliv- reliving the trauma of Reconstruction. We're reliving, you know, what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to to be an American? So forth and so on. And, like, 
like I, I think I just hit this communicative wall that can in my in my dumb idea can only be solved via meme can only be solved by you know putting Thaddy Stevens on a t-shirt and saying the original fad or or whatever <laughs> I, I think I think weirdly like if it, so this is not an original opinion for me I think a thing that we always run into is that stuff that is frankly just pure unfettered bullshit is really easy to turn into a meme it's it's the whole and this kills me because like i i actually really like the aesthetic of like actual art of antiquity i think it's really cool of you know everything being colorful and beautiful i love that i love i love painted marble i love painted stuff it's great but like you know the marble bus guys on twitter the the, the trads their ideas are simple and shallow and frankly if you're kind of a credulous dunce like yeah you're gonna go like oh it makes sense to me because i don't know anything Ooh. And and just having to communicate why those people are full of it just takes more space. You need a more runway to do it. I think like as far as, you know, things that can do a lot with a little bit of, you know, again, if we're, we're going to talk about things being, being every, you know, basically everything being a story, which is the through line to all humanity for the past, you know, 80,000 years of our history. Like, uh, this is a little post, a little post, 18, 1800s. I, I really, really, really love like the Wolfenstein series because there is like really or the new the new Wolfenstein games, specifically the 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 New Order and the what is it yeah the New Order and the New Colossus the the kind of the two main line of them because they cover in a really interesting way like racial politics of like the first half of the um of the tw- of the twentieth century in a way that like you're coming out of the eighteen hundreds and and you know B J Blazkowicz is this hulking blonde hair blue-eyed polish jew what does that mean and there's scenes of him in 1911 with a little black girl for a friend and his dad's a monstrous racist because america and like i i it, it communicates so much of like you know the experience of otherness in america with what is ultimately not a lot of narrative space. And there's a lot of depth to that, that like, if you want to go learn more about it, you want to dig into it some, you can. And if you are someone who knows anything about that history, and I will say it's Jew in America, something I know a lot about, it, it, the symbology of that, the, the, the semiotics of that are incredibly deep, are, are incredibly meaningful, because it connects to all these other things. It's a whole root system just goes so much deeper than it is on the surface and i think that's one of the things that you run into when frankly you are communicating something through a meme that is fundamentally like true is how do you tap into something that is real in both the present and in history because if you're just making something up if you're being you know again the twitter marble bust guy of like you know we used to build things that were cool and now there's a toilet art well, okay, that's that's easy to say because it's meaningless because it doesn't connect to any other ideas. It's it's really hard to say something that, that's that brief and it means something. I think to your point, like to build on the point you made, it, the Wolfenstein series, the new ones, mm-hmm. I think the most visceral moment for me in that game, games, I forget which one it is. It's the one where it opens up and you're kind of experiencing mainstream America. And 
you're walking down the street and you're seeing Klansmen, right? And you're seeing Nazis and you're kind of seeing that interaction. Oh yeah, that's the new Colossus. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and it it was just like, that bit of world building just blew my mind because just that interaction is really fast, right? You're you're Mm -hmm. kind of walking parallel to a parade or something, if I remember it correctly. And it was just like, in, the interaction is is takes a couple minutes, but it's just like it's so loaded in that imagery. Mm-hmm. The idea that the clan and Nazis would find common ground in this alternate history is just like, huh? That's kind of a little too real. Well, <laughs> like I think what's yeah, I think yeah. what's noteworthy about it specifically, and it's the people forget, and especially neo Confederates forget, because people like to to. People like to pretend, your neo-Confederate types like to pretend that the South was rebelling against, you know, not just Northern aggression, but Northern tyranny. And they like to talk about Abraham Lincoln's suspension of, of habeas corpus, which, sure, Greg Hull, whatever. It's, it's, I'm not going to go into the legality of the habeas corpus thing because it's complicated. It's not the big deal that people want it to be. It's really not. It's worth noting the Confederacy suspended habeas corpus twice it's worth noting the confederacy instituted a draft the first draft on the american continent was in the confederacy it's also worth noting that the the confederacy was full of hardcore imperialists it was full of monarchists like the confederacy was was in no way this this bastion of of you know libertarian we're gonna we're gonna be this this collection of states no if you want to argue about like national identity and solidification solidification of like Again, again, we're talking about nationalism, not in the like, you know, Nazi sense of nationalism, of just nationalism, like what does it mean to become a nation? It really started in the Confederacy, fundamentally, on the American continent, which is which is wild to think about. Just truly wild to think about. And instantly in the Confederacy, it went from we are a nation to everyone in the Confederacy is a subject of the confederacy anyone unwilling to swear an oath as a loyal subject of the confederacy is subject to prison time is subject to having their property you know taken from them by the confederacy i i'm i'm going to say like that's some pretty hardcore tyranny like (laughs) let's this is a very problematic thing i'm about to say here let's ignore the slavery thing for a second which is not something you get to say very often (laughs) When you are saying you have to swear an oath to the centralized government of of this society or risk a prison sentence, that's that's a pretty intense form of 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 tyranny. Like that's that's fascism before people knew that was a word they could say. Like and and I, I dare say that like there's a pretty straight line you could make of yeah, no, they would have been pretty tight buds with the Nazis. No problem. They would have been like, oh, yeah, we we love these guys and their cool armbands because that's 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 the Nazi thing. They would have been totally cool with that. And you can argue that, like, the Nazis actually, like, for the most part, the swearing of oath under the Nazi regime for most of the, the Mitlaufers, the fence sitters, was more about, like, social cohesion and a kind of, oh, God, I'm trying to remember the, I'm getting stuff in the German one. I can't remember what it is. It's like anticipatory obedience. And I'm, I, I can't, I, all I can think of is like, I can't remember the German word. And I'm trying to remember. It's basically what it means in English. It's again, anticipatory obedience. When you make people swear on oath, you're making them prepare to follow other orders. 
And that was a big thing with like, you know, getting people to join the Nazi party, getting people to swear oaths, as you're getting them ready to like follow orders they don't even know they're going to have to, to follow yet. You're getting them ready to do other bad stuff. Whereas the Confederacy was like, no, 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 no. You got to swear an oath right now to not go to jail. That's, it's rare that you can compare something to the Nazis unfavorably. And that's how bad the Confederacy was. So they totally would have been super buddies with the Nazis, 100%. (laughs) I mean, that is, yeah. I mean, that's kind of an interesting, like I did, like Wolfenstein itself is such a visceral game and just like, it kind of blew my mind that the writers had that kind of knowledge and, and sort of foresight to craft that image. Going back to the memes and the idea of memes and the Confederacy, like, I, I always find it interesting that the Confederacy, that you, let me step back, that you could do away with the institution of slavery mm-hmm. and you could have this whole kind of the South lost take your lumps, move on. And yet the meme of the Confederacy still exists. That it's, that, that when we boil down history to a meme, it's either can be positive, kind of in that, the reference to the John Brown t-shirt, or in this case would be negative. Like it's kind of, you know, persisting in such a way that it never goes away. And I, you know, I hate <laughs> kind of, Quoting Metal Gear Solid 2, that, that, that game comes up more than I, I am comfortable with <laughs> uh, mentioning. <laughs> but it's just like, yeah, it's it just kind of hilarious to me that people are willing to accept tenets of the Confederacy because they experienced a schenectady. They experienced a part or a mimetic expression of it without realizing the whole, like, we kind of saw this with the statue debate that happened a few at the towards the ends of the Trump administration. Like, you know, oh, that statue of Stonewall Jackson's history, and it's like, no, buddy, that was put up there in the 1920s by the Klan. Yeah, or oh, God it, knows what is it? Stone Mountain was finished in the 70s, which is insane. Yeah. It, it's it kind of blows my mind, like the power of memes. It's just yeah, like if nothing else, the Confederate battle centered on its own, and this is the thing that is is, is I, I say this again, as someone you know, not, not entirely raised in America, it's always blown my mind. We fought a whole war about, I mean, not about, but involving that flag. I have never understood beyond like, you know, the modern neologism of the meme, a bit of redundancy there, but yeah. If you fly that flag, it should be legal to fight you to take that flag away from you. Like we did, we did a whole war with like guns and cannons and burning down cities you don't get to do that flag anymore. Like, Germany is like, you can't fly Nazi flags. We got rid of that flag. No more Nazi flag. Like, not, not, it's not a free speech thing. We fought a war about it. Like, you can't, I don't, I, I get it. We're all so horny for the First Amendment in America. Great, cool, whatever, sure. I feel like when you fight a war about a thing, eh, it, you don't get to. Banned. Sorry. <laughs> I just, it's the dumbest thing about America. I, I, I genuinely don't get it. <laughs> it's it's weird. Like I, the fetishism that, I, as you said, like it's kind of almost horny for like Confederate figures, except James Longstreet, right? Except for Jimmy 
Jimmy Longstreet. So I, I guess my real, my theory, is we, we take down all the Confederate statues, right, of, of Stonewall Jackson, of Nathaniel Bedford, of, of, of all these, these dudes. And we just put up statues of James Long, Longstreet, right? We're mm-hmm. like, hey, that's also a Confederate, but he made something positive of his life. He didn't, you know, start the Klan or, you know, wasn't like a weird guy who held his arm up while being a mediocre cavalry guy or something. I don't know. <laughs> the, the one thing I think is, is amazing. I'm actually, I want to make sure I'm right about this. I'm going to do a, a quick Google route here because it is in, because this is me not knowing super well. Yeah, there it is. In, is it properly in New Orleans? I'm going to get this right. Okay, I guess we're going to do this. Yes, it is in New Orleans. There is a statue of PGT Beauregard in, in New Orleans. And PGT Beauregard is a, is a, strange figure to point to he is one of those like you know we'll never know his heart kind of guys because he he was a a he was a general he was a general of the the confederacy who you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna defend his generalship fighting on behalf of slavery go to hell but after the civil war in new orleans and, and and for those who don't know new orleans is a wildly fascinating compelling bizarre because it's you know french colony very different you know, racial hierarchy and configuration, the rest of the South. P.G. Beauregard, after the Civil War, okay, you can't, uh, progressive figure is not the right way to put it, but basically argued against the continued oppression of Black people. Now, does that mean that he got better? Does that mean he wasn't racist anymore? Maybe. Does that mean that he understood that for the continued empowerment of his politically advantaged group of white people, it would be necessary to have the democratic support, you know, lowercase d, I guess also at that time, uppercase d, democratic support of now enfranchised black people? Also, maybe. We don't know. There's no way to know. But what I do find interesting, what I do find compelling, is the statue of P.T. Beauregard, which was removed in whatever years, 17, 18, that sounds true. What is interesting is that it is not him, because he's, he's, he's appreciated by a lot of people, and not just your, your Confederate asshole types in New Orleans. Just, you know, hey, he's a figure in the city. He's part of why New Orleans doesn't suck quite so bad. It's complicated, you know, capital C, complicated. He's a complex guy. Again, I'm not complimenting. I'm just saying he's a guy that exists. But what's interesting is the statue they built of him is not General Beauregard, post-war reconstruction figure, patron of New Orleans. He's General Beauregard wearing a Confederate uniform, on his horse fighting for slavery now that sends a message doesn't it (laughs) that's a really good point is that the meme of the confederacy right it can include beauregard and it kind of edits out oh that reconstruction business but then james longstreet is like you know, he, he criticizes Lee, and then in, in 1874, he, you know, kicks the shit out of white supremacists down in Louisiana, and it's, it's kind of like, he, it's very antagonistic to him, right, and it, oh, yeah. even, even though if you look up his, his record during the Civil War, he's like one of the few competent guys, he's focused on winning the war, he's like, I actually want to win this war for the South, 
But then that that lost cause meme is just like, mm-hmm. ah, we're just gonna write him out of history. Fuck that guy. <laughs> I mean, what I find what I find fascinating, and this is this goes to the frankly the memification on the like neo Confederate side, and this this is this is pure dunking at this point. But you know, whatever, we get to have some candy, get to have some cheesecake. The memification of like, I mean, one Jackson is its own thing because because Stonewall Jackson, the best thing that could have happened to Stonewall Jackson is is friendly fire because because he was just a. a feral animal as a journalist is not that good that's his own thing but lee in particular was this stolid old world commander of just feeding people into a meat grinder his his ratios of 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 you know deaths and injuries were horrific compared to grants compared to other commanders even even confederate commanders because he had this conception of how battles were fought that's just feed them in boys get in there and and die for the cause which is not how industrial war was fought and and you know sort of to his credit kind of you know grant's goal was don't let lee entrench don't let don't let lee get in there and he did you know so hey you get some points there but once he did like you know across the western front you know there were requests into Virginia, like, hey, we need people. We need backup. We we need support. And they're saying, well, I, I don't know, man. It's going to take weeks to get out there. And by then, who knows what it's going to be like? Who knows how good or bad things will be? And we need these people here in Virginia. And and by the time, you know, things could have happened, there was a slaughter in the Western Front. And and that is that is baffling incompetence by someone you know who, who, from someone who by then was running the confederate cause it's it shocking and it is wild that there are all these just dorks these these button polishing nerds who are like oh man lee is the greatest guy who ever lived he's the smartest general of the whole war no he's not he's a funny duddy and a dullard like <laughs> he got so many people in the south Hill. he he did not care about a single southern life he ended I mean, it's shocking. It's it's a it's an unreal callousness for for just gross numbers of humans. It is it it again. It, it is a reflection of a of a truly centuries old mindset about how war is fought. And the idea that someone like that is is uplifted as a as as a beacon of the South, I think, in a lot of ways, reflects the mindset that like people of that political stance of a, you know, frankly, racist, imperialist, hegemonic mindset have about the value of human life, which is to say, not positive. (laughs) Do you think, I mean, that's an interesting kind of point you made, right? So like the idea of a racist, fascist kind of viewpoint, you know, kind of throws out the value of human life, like the meme of Lee is that he's this, as you pointed out, this fantastic general. But at the same time, I mean, I, I don't mean to both sides it, but like the embrace of Sherman as a meme is kind of, you know, laser eyes. He's, you know, didn't burn down the South enough or what, you know, it, you know, it, it kind of, it almost seems like, like when we fall into the memeing of history it's just nothing but kind of weird disaster even even like you know even if you agree with sherman it's still his memes 
you know, it's not stressing 40 acres and a mule. It's not stressing, yeah. you know, you know, giving black people land. It's stressing, oh, he burnt down Atlanta and, you yeah. know, and, and said, fuck the South. So, so actually, so I agree with parts of that. So I think there's an element of it, which is, again, the kind of like blunt nature of any time we look like to our past, we're going to find the simplest, bluntest narrative and latch onto some part of it. And I think if you're going to latch onto Sherman, that's the thing to latch onto. If you know anything about Sherman's role in the Civil War, and I'm, I'm going to like try to look at this from a perspective of someone who is not me and is more shallow shallowly has a shallower view god sure has a shallower view of things than i do so i i might be i might be kind of talking out of my ass here i think if you know anything beyond just the blunt like ah sherman's the 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 the, you know terminator he's the exploder movie guy of the north we love this i think like you're gonna you're gonna know the part of it that's like you know sherman was was in lockstep with with grant with lincoln of like we're gonna go down again you know we're gonna go down there we're gonna fight the battles we're, we're not gonna we're going to be done with kit gloves, basically, with civilians. And, and it's worth remembering that the way wars had been fought for the totality of human history before then was you're going to have to do not necessarily some pillaging, but some like in situ finding of supplies, food, whatever, right? But you don't have to be brutal about it. That is the way war had been fought for ever up to that point. This is the, you know, keep in mind, this is one of the first industrial wars ever in all of human history. There are observers from Europe watching the Civil War of like, oh shit, this is, uh uh-oh. This is some fucking war. This is some war-ass war. This is different. Oh, oh, beans. (laughs) The Civil War is a sea change in how war is fought. Like, keep in mind that like, from a little bit before the Civil War, to like the Crimean War, the face of global conflict changes over the course of decades. If you ever want to like, and we, and we do not have time to go into this, if you ever want to like, if there is a moment that like between the Napoleonic era and the Crimean War and like the charge of the Light Brigade, especially the charge of Light Brigade, the, I mean, arguably the charge of the Light Brigade, the failure of the charge of the Light Brigade is the exact moment truly the modern era begins it is it is effectively like you know in the way that like you know you can argue that the dropping of the atomic bomb is is kind of the beginning of the current age many people have said in the past that is not my hot take that's just something that you hear a ton of the charge and failure the light brigade all the things that lead into it and there's I'm, I'm brushing over like a whole area of, of like behavioral science and, and decision theory and stuff. When I say this, it is a thing that has been picked apart by so many people. The civil war is part of that equation and the logistics war that goes into the decision to fight hard war, the stuff that Grant does, the stuff that Sherman does, especially the stuff that Sherman does. Cause remember there are no supply chains behind Sherman behind his line. He punches through the southern lines and just digs into the south he forces the southern forces to like run in behind him like oh god oh no no there's just this like thorn just digging through the flesh of our of our lines we got to go get him and we can't there is no question that the war ended sooner 
and with an untold number of people not dead because of Sherman. Which is horrifying to think about, given the number of casualties of the Civil War. Because before Sherman, you had people who, you had, you had, you had women coming out of houses, rifle in hand, shooting at Union soldiers. <laughs> like, it, is, it is unreal, the hostility of the South against the North. And as, and, and, you know, Sherman would say, like, these are people who have sent their old, their young, they have sent the treasure of their land against us to die. What are we supposed to do? And I, I do think like there's, there's something to that point of like, these are not people who are, you, you can compare it to like, if you want to be cynical, you can compare it to America going to like Afghanistan and Iran, not Iran, Iraq. <laughs> we have not gone to Iran, thank God, to Iraq, you know, oh, the, the Buddhists liberated. We didn't think that. We just didn't expect like random old people and women to be shooting at the Union. And then they did. And it's like, well, we can't be having that. <laughs> Interesting. So I think we, we've been kind of chatting for about two hours now. And I think <laughs> we've hit kind of a, a natural kind of ending point. As with all our endings, we always ask the legendary question, which is leave us something, me, the audience, the cat, the dog, whomever, something to think about and something to chew on, something to kind of iterate in our mind, something that you want the audience and me as the interviewer to think about and iterate going forward after this conversation. Oh, man. Okay. So I will say this, actually. I think a really useful lens to this, which, because it is a thing that we, you know, maybe could have spent more time talking about, but I think also just you only had so much room. And probably the, the best figure to, we talked a lot about like the lens lenses of, of history, the various forms of, of historiography, doing history with history, the writing on history, the mode of history. There are more methods than are worth, you know, kind of counting, going over. One can use, especially to study the 1800s. I think there is one person who I think is, is probably worth reading about this, who obviously wrote about the Civil War, but who also writes considerably about the sociology, the psychology if you want to say the perception the social movement of oppressed peoples and particularly black people w.e.b was who we mentioned briefly and then particularly talks a lot about the idea of the double consciousness the way that one has to function within themselves within their kind of culture within the larger system of society and how those things exist in tension and how those things create a sense of shame with how those things can create a sense of strength sometimes, how they can kind of falter and fall apart. And what I think is, is compelling about Du Bois, one, he is a truly beautiful writer, but also if, you, if you've read a lot of like broader leftist theory, if you've read a lot of Huey P. Newton, some of his ideas will be kind of familiar because Newton certainly influenced by Du Bois. You see a lot of Hegelian themes, in, in Du Bois that I think are very useful as far as the ideas of the dialectic. And, you know, I mean, certainly if you're dealing with like the idea of like double consciousness and, and like a two-ness, a, a twin 
forces within the self and the interaction between the self and the culture and society. Like clearly there's a lot of dialectic there. I would, I would definitely say to, to dig into his writings. A lot of it is, is beautiful and ornate as the writing is. It is surprisingly readable. It is a kind of academic literature and a kind of academic writing that I, I wish more academic writing was like. It is, it is. I would, uh, dense is the wrong word because dense means it's hard to read. It is thick with meaning. It is rich. It is, it is the sacerdote of, of kind of academia, that it is easy to eat and that it is, is filling. I, I'm a huge, huge boss head. If you want to go deeper in that, I would definitely say, as I, as I like to, you know, read Gramsci. I think digging into kind of how, you know, all of us, not just, not just oppressed people, people who just exist in society, who might feel some tension with broader society as a whole, can be caught up and the hegemon of society. It is, it is very meaningful to kind of have that just rattling around at the back of your head, that like our, our ontology, the tools and ideas and, and frameworks that we use to interact with the world are kind of defined by the larger framework of the culture in which we exist. And that larger framework is in many ways defined by the structures of power in which we exist. And those structures of power in which we exist are in many ways created by the most powerful people in our societies. Culture can be created by many collaborating smaller entities, but sometimes that's not the case. And we have to be mindful of cultural hegemony and how it impacts us in society. A, a large theme in the last you know, 150 years of history is kind of what is society, what is culture, and what is the role of the individual within culture? And, you know, again what does that mean in the context of society and i think that is something that is incredibly important when we think about how we interact with ourselves and how we can make better societies because you know society is important it is is <sighs> at the time of recording some stuff has gone down in in japan it's some pretty wild stuff some stuff is happening you know here in america Thing, things are happening history is happening all around us all the time i i think regardless of one's personal thoughts it's fair to say like oh man it sure would be cool if things were, were more stable were nicer were better for more people all the time and we might not be able to find the answer to how do we make things better looking back in history you know because a lot of people try to do that and they turn into you know return to tradition people that's not great necessarily but we can find the tools for finding those answers in history and i think that's something that is is very important and useful to do so again i would say you know read Bois, read gramsci play wolfenstein definitely do that and i don't know fucking fucking play hard spaceship breaker it's a really good game. It's made by the people who made homeworlds big fan of hard spaceship breaker playing a lot of that lately and yeah that's that's i guess that's what i have to bake on <laughs> Awesome. Very insightful as always. That was my good friend, Enzi Kartasi. I mm -hmm. always mispronounce your name. And I, oh, thank, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I, I hope I was, was worth having on. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> always. Thank you.